There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. Cahill Dervin sitting in today for Michael. We're going to begin the programme this morning with a story that is worrying so many people in Drogheda after a series of incidents which began last Thursday and yesterday. There were two separate bomb incidents in Drogheda. One when the army were called out to cope with an explosive device that was placed on the Dublin Road. And then last night on Skelly's Lane in Moneymore, gas cylinders left in a car which was set alight. Joining me to discuss this and the concerns of people on the ground are Councillor Kenneth Flood, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council and Chair of the Drogheda Joint Policing Committee, and Councillor Paul Bell, Labour, Labour Councillor on Louth County Council. Good morning to you, gentlemen. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Paul, can I ask you, first of all, uh, you've written to the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, about this. This is a very concerning time for residents in Drogheda. Yes, well, I, I've drafted correspondence to the new Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, uh, to appeal for help, uh, straight up. Uh, I believe that uh, this, the, the structure of the Garda Corner within Drogheda at the moment uh, is not, you know, basically equipped to deal with issues that are now confronting our communities. And by that I mean, like, there's a need for additional Garda personnel, there's a need for more overtime working where it's required because these kind of activities while they're now front page news, uh, any councillor involved in dealing with antisocial behaviour or criminal behaviour over the last three to four years would understand that it was inevitable that these kind of incidents would manifest themselves in our communities. But uh, be very clear about this, Cahal, uh, I'm not critical of the local Garda superintendent or chief superintendent or the, the men and women of the force, but I am saying that a blind eye cannot keep being torn to the fact that we do not have the resources that we require in Drogheda. And indeed, and I've always been very, very cautious about comparing ourselves with our sister town in Dundalk, but there has been a growing uh, situation whereby Dundalk and North County Louth seemingly are getting more Garda resources same population, probably facing the same challenges as we are here in Drada. I think the Commissioner needs to pay attention to what's been said to him by his local uh, comrades and also the, what the public are saying and indeed what public representatives are saying. Kenneth, I'm going to ask you, I mean, the public must be very concerned you know, at this moment in time. We had the incidents on Thursday and Friday, six in total. They were, they were bad enough. But then yesterday... The Army Disposal, Bomb Disposal Unit are called out to Dublin Road. Last night you were present on Skelly's Lane in Moneymore. Gas cylinders left in a car which was set alight. Innocent people are going to get caught up in this. Yes, Carl. Um, and it seems to be innocent people getting um, 
target uh, for for the, the 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 weakest of links. Um, last night, myself and Councillor Joanna Bourne went to Moneymore after uh, the second um, explosion, and we spoke to residents there. And it was the the over. Just tell us how bad that could have been. Well, two gas uh, cylinders in that car that could have severely uh, damaged houses, taken life. Anybody walking by uh, at that time of the evening. When we went up... I don't uh, know the area. This is a residential area. This is a area. residential area. When we went up later in the evening, there was people standing on the doorsteps looking out at the guards in fear, wanting to know what was happening. There was no information forthcoming and all they, all they knew was that there had been um, an explosion. They didn't know whether there was other devices in the area. As you said yourself, there was one earlier in a different part mm-hmm. of town. There's a possibility that could have been a distraction for this second one, and that's what people were saying. Uh, they were in fear of their lives, fear for their children's lives, and fearful of going to bed that night, not knowing what might wake them up in the night. Paul, this is getting very serious when we have two incidents involving explosions mm-hmm. in the one day. The first incident on the Dublin Road, this is a busy part of town, absolutely. And uh, obviously, the army uh, disposal squad were on scene there for approximately six hours. The guards took it very seriously. I understand that the suspect device was taken away for forensic examination. So whatever it was, I don't know whether it was viable or not, but Ken is correct. There is All a, the reports a, this morning say it was yeah, viable. Well, there is a, a, a very, very you know, informed concern that basically that both incidents are related to each other. Uh, maybe to, the, to stretch the resources of Angalashia Corner in the town, uh, maybe not. But again, that's what's been put... To, to us as, as councillors but one thing for sure that there's a heightened sense of anxiety among certain communities in our town and it doesn't just have to be in Moneymore it's also in other areas of our town what has been developing over the last number of years is that certain individuals and small cohorts of individuals believe that they can dominate communities they can suppress uh, the public from coming forward to, to the guards to cooperate and also I think that the guards Khan themselves because of the depleted resources are losing contact with the community and they're losing confidence with the community and this is not the first time I've said that I've been at the joint policing committees with uh, as Ken chairs them I've been in here saying the same thing and what is basically going on is that the community are very, very deeply concerned that they're not going to get the protection that they have and it's very, very difficult to speak out even on a confidential basis. Can the guards deal with this, Kenneth? Yes, they can, um, given the, the right information. But the guards and us as councillors and, and Lao County Council need to connect with communities on this issue and connect properly. Um, for several years as chair of the Joint Policing Committee, I've been asking for additional public meetings in various parts of Drada to speak to people. Um, that was rejected by uh, at, those, at those meetings. Um, we need to assure people that they're being listened to and people need to be informed of what's going on. Um, last night's operation in Moneymore, the guards were there for hours, but people weren't told anything. And that just heightened people's sense of fear. And because of that, their confidence in the Gardaí to protect them because they weren't getting any information was waning. The people will not come forward. Rumours were rife last night, weren't they? Rum- Rumours were flying for hours and hours last night. Um, but that was because in the in the vacuum, in the void, when when the proper information isn't there, people will fill it. Um, and fear's a, a powerful thing for for making people uh, come to conclusions. Uh, so this is an unprecedented level of violence and drama at the minute. There needs to be an unprecedented. We haven't seen this before. No, we've never seen this before. Anything there, close to it? In 2016, there was various um, firebomb attacks in Moneymore as well. 
Um, I asked in the Joint Policing Committee could we hold additional meetings and um, I was told no. So residents asked us to facilitate a meeting in the area, which we did at Moneymore Boxing Club. I asked the guards to come along, they did. I asked the antisocial behaviour officer from uh, Low County Council to come along and he did, facilitating the requests from the public. That meeting was a success. The guards ran an operation for four months after that. All those incidents stop. So we need uh, that again. We need we need that again, but we were blocked from doing it again. Huh. Paul, can I ask you? I mean, can, I, can, I, can I just can I just ask you I sure first of all? Oh, yeah. the, the reports yeah. in the papers this morning and, yeah. and, and our own news are suggesting that this is two gangs at war. Is is is, is that a fair assessment? Well, it's funny information I have from the communities. It seems to be. But there's definitely other people being impacted upon because in order for that activity to go on, uh, the public have to have basically an understanding, have the, the confidence to cooperate with the guards to... to, to but the public uh, are going to live in fear. If they're, they, they're they see absolutely, what's happening yeah. in, no, they, the and com- you have information, yeah, the you're going to be afraid to the, com- the communities are, are on the siege with this. But I just want to touch on something that, that Ken raised. And I'll be very clear, and I don't want to be disrespectful to Ken as chairman of, of the Joint Policing Committee. The Joint Policing Committee is a talking shop. Let's be very clear about that. I've been attending joint policing committees uh, for the last number of years, bringing these issues to the joint policing committee in the presence of the local authority. And by the way, the local authority have a role to play here, not just the Garda Corner, and sometimes that's forgotten. They have a significant role to play in this. Uh, there were certain commitments made over the last couple of years to try and, and defend communities and equip communities to deal with Anti-social behaviour and criminal behaviour. But a community which, can't deal no, with carbon. No, yeah, dead right. But which is all related. But don't forget something. This is a creeping impact. What's been going on for the last number of years is now manifesting itself into this. The policing that Ken is talking about, I agree with that. But the problem is, unless the guards have the monies to pay for that, unless they have the personnel to pay for that, in Mathmullen, in Ballsgrove, uh, in Marion Park, uh, in areas like. Uh, um, St. Finian's Park, we had similar problems. The guards the year before last were able to put in forces, dedicated forces, stop joyriding, stop drug trafficking going on, uh, be able to talk to the public. The public's confidence was building up. The money ran out and then the guards had to leave the area. And then we were back to the same behaviour as before and now even worse. And it's all connected. So, Kenneth, are you the chair of a talking shop? I am. I would say the Joint Policing Committee is a talking shop as well. We've brought forward initiatives over the last couple of years, agreed by all the members. And I'll just give an example. The level of, of public uh, drunkenness in the centre of Drada was a huge uh, concern. I brought an initiative forward for a responsible service of alcohol. It was uh, passed by the Low Drug and Alcohol Forum, said we should trial it in Drada and see how it works. I've brought it to the Joint Policing Committee every single meeting and every steering committee meeting for years now. And still, they don't move forward. So I understand Councillor Bell's frustrations to my own frustrations too. But what we can do is reconnect with people on the streets again by having additional public meetings throughout Drada, throughout the year, not just when something like this comes up. I believe that if the people in Drada had the confidence in the Gardaí Council, in terms, in terms of the current incidents and, and, and in terms of what's happened over the weekend, yeah. can people live safely and live without fear that something major is going to happen in Drada? It's a very hard question to answer because I don't want to spread fear. I don't, I don't want to be part of spreading fear. One thing I will say is that no part of Drada is gangland and ganglands don't control Drada. Uh, Drada belongs to the citizens and residents here. What so, I will, so what, what is what the reason? Going, what is the reason? Why is this happening at this moment in time? Is it drugs related? It, apparently so it is drugs related. It's two gangs at war over drugs. But what's going to happen now is that there will be a meeting tomorrow of the Steering Committee, the Joint Policing Committee, they will announce after that 
um, hopefully additional resource for Drada because in July but we can't I mean presumably we cannot guarantee the people of Drada that there will not be another incident today no we can't guarantee that we can't guarantee no. that well, I, well, I'm unaware that they, they have such a meeting I'm obviously I'll be informed later on if I'm part of that yeah. it's the steering but, committee but no problem that's fair enough again a photo discussion the reason I communicate directly to the commissioner and I've appealed for help I haven't said I'm critical of your of your of your service. I'm appealing for help to defend the communities which need the defence, and I'm appealing for your help because you're, it's been ignored. The situation we're facing here, which has been creeping up and creeping up because of lack of gather resource and lack of monies. Has, now, he, has he replied now, to you? As uh, no, uh, has not. Now the chief superintendent and the local gather superintendent for me. They need to make a public statement. They need to walk into the studio and ensure the people of Drogheda that the Garda can manage this situation. But do you think they, they have th- the resources? I don't think they have. But they have to come in here and assure the public in those areas and elsewhere in the town. This is, this is not just in certain areas. I think Ken is correct there. It's, 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 it has a, a, a ripple effect right across the community. That's the first thing I want to see. I want to see... This happening where the people are assured that the guards can deal with these matters and they will get resources to deal with them. Remember, if you can only police in a democracy where the citizens are confident in the police force. That's, that's the only way it can be done. That's, that's what we've all signed up to. Kenneth, you were on, you were on the street in Moneymore last night. I mean, mm. do you think people slept soundly last night? No, I don't. I absolutely don't. And I, I know he didn't because my daughter was speaking to her classmates um, on, on mm. Messenger this morning um, asking did that else happen and he said, they didn't sleep. They were in fear um, because they, weren't, they didn't know if anything else was going to happen. They didn't know if the Garda presence was going to continue in the area, if they had the resources to continue um, in the area. Um, but coming back to, to, to the Garda resources. Oh, oh yeah. so I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried for the people of Drogheda. Oh, I know that sounds as very a, sensationalist. As am I. Yeah. But, you know, having a joint police meeting tomorrow, talking about it on Wednesday, it's all well and good. But there are no guarantees that nothing's going to happen between now and then. No, there's not. There's no guarantee. What we will say is that there is Gardaí on the street. Um, there was a visible presence in Moneymore last night, mm. as there was um, on, on the Dublin Road at, at, at the Boring uh, mm. as well. And um, we, although we can't give no guarantees, we can just hope that the highly visible Garda presence and the additional resources that will come to the town to deal with this, as you've seen the, the armed response units mm. tr- around the town, will be enough to, to uh, stymie any further actions. But this can't be just, let's put a checkpoint and hope we come across something. This needs to be an intelligence-led operation to end this. And they need information this, to do this, this, I want to just touch on that, that. This can only be defeated where the guards have the support of the community and the community have the confidence in the guards. Mm. But the that, guards need resources they, for that. But it's, it's correct. It's all intelligence-led. Mm. I've asked for an emergency response to this situation. Yes, there has to be armed uh, police officers in the area for a period to try and deter those involved in this activity. But it, as we know... It's in, a sad in, day for Drogheda. It is. In other, par- in, in, yeah, in other parts of the country... It had to be a dedicated, focused approach to squeeze these type of people out and to give the community confidence, to give the intelligence to the guards. This is a community response that's required. So the confidence has to be built up. I don't agree with all this idea that we you have meeting after meeting after meeting. This issue is fluid. It's live. It's happening now. We always knew it was going to happen. The guards know. They, they have their own intelligence sources. But the community need to be liberated from this type of activity and they can only be liberated when they have confidence that they can have a police force that can, that can police them. Would you appeal kind of to people who have information to come forward? Because there are bound to be people within the community who know what's going on, know why it's happening and perhaps are afraid to say something. 
Oh, that is absolutely the case, yeah. And I would appeal to people to, to give whatever information they can to Garda Síochána through whatever Garda phone line they want to be, the confidential line or directly to, to uh, draw the Garda station. Can, can I make one point here? Given of information, like here's a, situa- a situation that's ongoing in the community that I directly serve. I don't even know who my community guard is, <clears throat> but you haven't contacted me. And there are issues ongoing all the time, which I have to relay through various channels. The, the, uh, like like Councillor Flood here, citizens will come to him or come to me rather mm-hmm. than go to the guards. And then we communicate that. Like, th- these issues are ongoing all the time. So that's the type of connect that we need. Have you spoken to the guards about this? Absolutely. And what response have you got? They, they believe that they are doing the very best they can and, that, and applying the resource that they have and are obviously appealing for other resources mm-hmm. as well. We need that to happen now. Do you think, Kenneth, that a meeting is going to be enough? It'll be a start. It'll be a start. In July, when the, the superintendents of the North East released a public statement, which again, in my time has been on priest, is saying that they do not have the resources to adequately police. That set up a huge red flag. I've never heard a chief superintendent coming out and saying, I, I just can't, I do not have the resources to police my division. Presumably these two um, gangs are listening to this as absolutely, well. Absolutely, as, as well as that. Able to yeah. Yeah. And, and another drain on the resources is that there's five live murder cases in Loud, the highest in the country outside of At Dublin, moment, which is sorry. a huge drain on the resources as well. But no additional resources mm. have been forthcoming. In, in, and that needs, the, that needs to be addressed. Including the provision of overtime, which is, which is now immediately required. That uh, overtime ban can be lifted. The, the, unfortunately, the, the overtime budget had been exhausted through some of the issues that Ken is referring to there. We need that help now. That, can, fi- be, that can be a done. A final question to both of you. I'm going to start with you, Kenneth. Do you think these gangs have any fear whatsoever of the Gardaí? At the minute, no. Um, but they will. They will. They've been empowered by their actions in the last couple of weeks because... It doesn't seem there's been no arrests so far. They may feel that they're untouchable, but they're not. And they will be caught. They will be arrested. They will end up in jail. That's going to happen. It's happened elsewhere in the country with these feuds where these criminals thought they were untouchable. They weren't untouchable. And they're not untouchable here either. Do you feel, Paul, that they think they're untouchable? Yes, they do. Mm. And by the way, that hasn't developed over the last three, four, five days. That's developed over three years. Ask any citizen and any of these communities. They've been watching these developing right in 2016. We need a fast, strong response from the Garda Commissioner. Councillor Paul Bell, Labour Councillor on Louth County Council and Councillor Kenneth Flood, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council and Chair of the Drogheda Joint Policing Committee. We thank you both for your time this morning. If you have a comment, please do text us. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're very welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Carl Dervin from the Irish Sun. Our text number is always 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. If you have a text on the current situation in Drogheda, please do get in touch. Marie will be in studio with us just after 10 to go through your text. Joining me now on the line, I'm delighted to say from the north of Ireland, is Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South County Down. Jim, good morning to you. Northern Ireland, thank you. <laughs> North of Ireland, North, North of Ireland. Ireland. We, don't, we don't include Donegal. Northern oh, fair Ireland. enough. Um, Jim, I'm asking you about Theresa May and the DUP and Brexit. I mean, reports this morning that we may have a deal tomorrow uh, to pursue. Where do you think we are with Brexit at the moment? I think we're in a very worrying situation. Um, we're talking about a backstop to a backstop uh, that all of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, will be uh, part of a regularly uh, regime on a temporary basis. But when that uh, ends, the fear is that Northern Ireland could still be left in another regular regime. 
And I keep making the point that Northern Ireland must leave the European Union on exactly the same basis as the rest of the United Kingdom. That doesn't appear likely at this moment in time, does it? Well, uh, our, our leader, Arling Foster, and our spokesman, Sammy Wilson, made it absolutely clear that we will vote. We will t- use our 10 votes at Westminster to oppose anything which changes our constitutional status. Remember, Cahill, that 0.2% of Britain's GDP is involved in trade with the Irish Republic. 0.2%. And are we prepared to sacrifice the constitutional status of a part of the United Kingdom for such a small part of our total gross national product? It would appear at this moment in time, Jim, that Theresa May is prepared to do just that. Well, if she is, that's very unwise, and obviously our 10 MPs will be making it clear to her that we can't do anything which will endanger not only our constitutional status, but also our our trading status. Because remember, 75% of the goods produced in Northern Ireland are sent to the rest of the United Kingdom, and 72% of the materials that arrive in Northern Ireland are from the rest of the United Kingdom. You wouldn't tolerate this in the Irish Republic. You wouldn't tolerate a, a line down the middle of Ireland, say, down the Shannon, which where one side would be treated differently to the rest. This is an absolutely crucial issue. Your own leader, Arlene Foster, you've referred to her already this morning, Jim, she said this could cause Northern Ireland, and I quote, to diverge away from the UK over the next decade. Is that absolutely a worry? Right. Absolutely right. And every unionist in Northern Ireland is extremely concerned about this because it's, 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 it's a disaster constitutionally and also trading-wise because it effectively puts a, a, a major regulatory barrier between trade in Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Would Kerry or Galway tolerate this? No, they wouldn't. So why should Northern Ireland... Well, it's not a situation we're faced with, Jim. We didn't, we didn't You're not, take... But what, what I'm trying to do is illustrate the fact uh, that an integral part of the Irish Republic would not t- tolerate trading barriers at its border of its country. When, when Arlene Foster says to diverge away from the United Kingdom, what does she mean exactly? I mean, what are the alternatives if she's talking about diversion? Well, the, the alternatives is that all of the United Kingdom has some form of uh, trading agreement with the rest of the European Union. That's what's really required, rather than any divergence between one part of the UK and the other. And and we're coming up to a crucial decision here. And I I don't think that this proposal, A, will certainly not get the backing of the DUP MPs. And equally, there are about 80 Conservative MPs who are extremely worried they'll not be voting for it. And 16 Scottish Conservative MPs who are very worried that if if this is enforced upon Northern Ireland, then the Scottish Nationalists will demand it in Scotland. This is a nightmare. It has to stop and we have to go back to the drawing board. Were you staggered at the letter that you received from Theresa May last week? Well, I, I personally didn't receive it. My party leader received it. Well, what I can say, yes, we were, because uh, on closer examination, it revealed that a lot of our worst fears had, had, were looking like they're about to happen. Because... Up until now, Theresa May has made it absolutely clear that she's not prepared to dilute the United Kingdom in any shape or form. So therefore, it was a great surprise to get a letter which indicated that Northern Ireland could be left languishing in a situation where we have all the, that, the, the downside of the regulatory regime from Europe and none of the upside, because remember, we would have no say in any of these regulations because we'd have lost to European members of the European Parliament and we would have lost uh, the right to have a commissioner. So Northern Ireland will have rules enforced upon it in which it has no say whatsoever how they're formed. But if there is diversions, what are the alternatives? I mean, is, is it to look at joining up with the Republic? Is it to look at a, an independent Northern Ireland state? <laughs> I, I think the phrase 
between the devil and the deep blue sea strikes me there. Yes, joining up the Irish Republic is not on. Uh, though, obviously, if the Irish Republic was to come back into the United Kingdom, <laughs> that would be an option. I think both are slightly unlikely, to put it mildly. No, we need to go back to the drawing board and reach a sensible agreement with the rest of Europe. Now, i tell you why that can't happen. Because the European Union has to make an example of the United Kingdom. It cannot allow us to leave easily, because if it did, then the Czechs and the Hungarians and the Dutch and others who are full of European sceptics would uh, demand the same treatment. So therefore, they have to make painful for the United Kingdom. This is, this is nothing about a smooth Brexit. This is everything protecting the monolith called, monolith called the European Union. But it would appear at this moment in time that the people paying the price then for the heavy exit, for want of a better term, are yourselves and the DUP and the people of Northern Ireland. Well, as things stand, but you're assuming, of course, that any of this will go through Parliament. It has to be tabled uh, in a motion at Westminster. And my view is that it's highly unlikely it's going to get through. And therefore, Theresa May is going to go back and start again. Because I have to say, what has been very heartening is the number of Conservative MPs, and particularly Scottish uh, Conservative MPs, who have come forward and sort of uh, nailed their colours to the mast and said, we support Northern Ireland. And the vast majority of MPs can see our point of view. It's, it's something that they, they, they would feel exactly the same as they're in that position. So, therefore, I, I, I'm... I'm reasonably relaxed that when it comes to the crunch this will not be acceptable and we go back to, for further negotiation Leo Faradkar the Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland said in Paris yesterday at the Armistice uh, event he said that no one party can veto Brexit and it would appear that if you guys are, are going to go back to Parliament and say you're voting against this if the Scottish Conservatives and some of our own party that there is going to be a veto Well first of all I can say I strongly welcome Leo Faradkar who I know personally uh, his decision to go to Paris yesterday to the Remembrance Service. That was much appreciated by many veterans mm-hmm. up here. No, it's not a question of one part of the DUP, though we obviously represent a very significant proportion of the population in Northern Ireland. But it's also the Scottish Conservatives and uh, the English Conservatives and, of course, even some Labour MPs. So there's widespread concern about this. It's not, it's not confined just to ourselves. And many people do get it. Many people say, we understand fully your concerns. And this, this is really the constitutional and trading status of Northern Ireland for many years to come. And this, this is a crisis. This is something that has to be sorted out. But I'm confident that sense will prevail. Over the weekend on, on uh, RT television in Dublin, both Bertie Ahern and John Bruton, two former Prime Ministers of the Republic, two former Taoiseach, said that they are of the belief that a second referendum is needed in Britain. Well, we don't do what happens in the Irish Republic. We don't go for two, the best, uh, best out of three. Uh, this but you're not, getting, you're not getting this one through, are you, Jim? Well, well, the referendum did go through, and we did win it by 17.4 million people, the largest democratic exercise ever undertaken in the United Kingdom, a clear majority over one million. But not in, uh, Nor- not in Northern Ireland. Well, hang on then. Well, not in Roscommon or not in Donegal. Mm-hmm. Remember, you have two referenda and Roscommon had the good sense to vote against gay marriage and Donegal had the good sense to vote against abortion. And the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted against Brexit. Yes, but remember, as, as your referenda were, it was an all-Ireland referenda, a 26-county referenda. Similarly, in the United Kingdom, the overwhelming majority of people voted to leave Europe. We're part of the United Kingdom, so therefore we abide by those rules. I, from a very practical point of view, I cannot see how we could have a second referendum 
between now and March the 29th. I just don't think that's possible. So, so therefore, uh, will Europe allow for further time? I doubt it. Uh, is it democratic? It definitely isn't. And we have to go, go back and throw up a proposal that gets us out of Europe on a way that keeps Northern Ireland in exactly the same position as the rest of the UK. Because remember, my first vote was in 1975 when I voted to, to leave Europe. We left Europe in the same business as the rest of the United Kingdom at that point. Uh, we, we joined Europe and we must leave it at this point on the same business. Finally, Jim, to wrap up, uh, do you expect the DUP to support Theresa May going forward? On this issue, no. I mean, we have a confidence and supply uh, agreement with the, her, 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 her government on the basis that uh, we will do everything to protect the interests of Northern Ireland. This is so fundamental that I cannot see how we could support her on this issue. Now, of course... If we can get round this particular matter and get a, a sensible arrangement, then we will continue to support the Conservative government at Westminster, and they would have great difficulty continuing without that. But this is this is absolutely fundamental. If we, remember, it says it, it, it says it on the tin: we are the Democratic Unionist Party, and therefore we must do everything possible to support that union. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for Southdown. We thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're very welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. Cahill Dervin sitting in today for Michael 086 1800 658. As always, our text number 086 1800 658. If you have a comment on the Drogheda story in particular that we had at the start of the programme after those attacks, uh, car bomb and pipe bomb attacks over the weekend, we would like to hear it. And Marie will be in with me just after 10 o'clock to discuss that and more issues of the day. Now, last week, the President of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, said that he believes mortgage holders pay higher interest rates here in the Republic of Ireland than in the Eurozone average because the market is not competitive enough. Joining us to discuss this is David Hall, CEO of Irish Mortgage Holders. David, good morning to you. Morning, Hall. Is there a lack of competition in the mortgage market, David? Completely, yeah. And I think we've got five main five main lenders left after everybody has absconded. Um, having many mortgage lenders have come into the state you know, pre the crash, uh, ran amok with various products they provided, which was like 100% mortgages, 110% mortgages, cashbacks and all sorts of gimmicks. Uh, unfortunately, the crash arose and many of them then had to sell loan books and uh, leave the country. So now we were promised some competition. We were told that if we clean up our act and, and help with regulation, we'd get some uh, additional um, competition that hasn't happened. So there's been a question mark whether there's a, a couple of banks have have asked the central bank for you know, permission to come into the country, and I think John McGuinness raised that with um, Mr. Draghi um, at the meeting last week. He didn't sort of answer too well. Philip Lane, the governor of the central bank, was sitting beside him, and he didn't speak at all during the exchange. But there was a question that, you know, Spartacus and a few other banks have looked at coming in. Have you entertained them or given them permission, or why have you resisted them, given they have low interest rates? There is a major issue around borrowing in other jurisdictions. Why can't we, as European citizens, borrow in Italy or borrow in Germany where rates are much, much lower. And the excuse that's propagated actually is well worth giving the bank's perspective, which is they say it's very hard to repossess a house in Ireland. And it is very hard to repossess a house in Ireland, thank God. But notwithstanding all of that, AIB made 1.6 billion euros last year and uh, Bank of Ireland for the first six months of this year made 500 million euros. So it mustn't be too bad if those are the profits can be made. Both banks, David, correct me if I'm wrong, which you and I bailed out. Yeah, absolutely. And then this one makes the whole thing sickening is that these excuses are given by department officials, by the minister and by bank lovers, when in fact the evidence before them 
states categorically that this is pure and utter greed, and that's why the interest rates are so high. You cannot make 1.6 billion euros. It is not humanly possible to make 1.6 billion euros and say that you've got a problem in reducing your interest rates. That's just not possible. Just tell us what the interest rate situation is at the moment, if you would, please. It depends who you ask. It's between 1.7, maybe 1, and 1.9 or 2% higher than what it is in, in, in Europe. And one of the things we don't do very well in Ireland is look at switching our mortgage. Uh, many people and many brokers throughout the country you know, provide a service of looking at switching your mortgage. Many people are on much higher rates with the fixed rates options available at the moment. It's very competitive. A number of the banks are very competitive in fixed rate mortgages at the moment. And it's very, very important for people like myself and others who advocate and give out regularly in relation to banks. But it is very important for customers to go and have a look at what the options are. There's serious money to be saved in relation to making changes. And many people, you know, some people are fortunate enough to be able to pay their mortgage. Many, many thousands, Carl, apart from the ones we represent who are in difficulty and in mortgage arrears, there's actually tens of thousands of people who are on the edge and literally on the edge who are making payments are struggling to make those payments the recovery hasn't exactly give, brought them up over waterline yet they're struggling day by day they're making serious choices to maintain those payments and doing very very well in doing so so it's imperative that where possible you know, engage with your local um, mortgage broker try and find see what options there may be the options might not be great but find out what the options are there are competitive rates and there are options available and there are savings available more importantly did I read the other day that AIB and Bank of Ireland between them uh, own 60% of the mortgage market here in Ireland? Yeah, just under 60%. Yeah, it, again, they're two, they're, they call them two pillar banks. I call them a cartel. Um, you know, and effectively, we have five banks which effectively make up a, a cartel, given that, you know, Permanent GSB is also uh, de facto state-owned by 74 75%. AIB is the same. So, you know, it, it's funny and strange and, and a bit peculiar to hear people talking about difficulties in banks and difficulty with interest rates, interest rates being so high, you know, we have a very, very odd system. We have a regulator, which is the central bank, whose sole job it is to support the banking uh, world. But they also have a dual process, which is a highly conflicted process under statutory powers they're required to protect consumers. Now, it's very strange, you know, in third world countries, you'd normally accuse a dictator of enforcing such rules upon a sector which we have here which is a regulator who also looks after consumer protection and then to add insult to injury we have two of the main banks who are mortgage lenders controlled by the state yes they're gouging customers and that's all that's happening here this is unmitigated greed and gouging and a high lack of respect for those same customers who stood by the banks stood by making their payments and protected those banks over the last 10 years if I'm a new mortgage uh, holder, if I'm looking to buy a house for the first time, what are the options available to me in terms of who can I deal with? Well, you deal with the best option for you is to deal with one of the mortgage brokers who don't charge. They, they'll declare their fee for the bank. The bank will pay them. And then the, one of the questions to ask a mortgage broker is if you're given a choice of two or three banks, ask them how much the bank is paying them in fees. So there's no biases, which there normally isn't, but there's no harm for pure, pure transparency to say if Bank of Ireland, AIB and Permanent TSB are offering me a mortgage, how much are you being paid in fees from those three? And they will advise you as to what the best product that is available. But and, it is and, very. And aside from those two, who else is in them? Or those three? Old Bank, KBC, Permanent TSB, Bank of Ireland, and AIB, Pepper uh, Mortgages now comes to market as well and have one product that's useful for some people who've had financial difficulties in the past, where they'll charge a marginal additional rate of 1, 1.5% on top of the rate. But there is a product there for people who have been in difficulty and have had credit issues in the past. The five they're, main banks, they're, they're now known as Finance Ireland, aren't they? They've been 
with Pepper, Pepper are no Pepper was still are still trading as Pepper That's Finance. Cool. I'm looking at commercial. They're looking at commercial, more commercial loans. But okay. from a residential perspective, Pepper are doing it as well. So they were traditionally called a vulture fund. They moved into mainstream banks banking now. Um, so you've got six options within the state at the moment, but three of them are providing exceptionally uh, low fixed rates at the moment. So there is a, a choice to be made, and people should look at changing, look at switching, or those looking at, at you know looking for mortgages. The problem, actually, Carl, is many people can't find houses, mm-hmm. um, and they all they all are linked. But ultimately, we're charged we're being charged one point six one point nine percent higher than our European colleagues. Banks are back to profit. We bail them out. We support them not just in in austerity measures, but also in making payments. Those who are in a position to make payments over the last ten years, and now we're being gouged. In terms of repossessions and vulture funds, where do we stand at the moment? Repossession numbers in the overall scheme of things are low, um, but ultimately the challenge is that many people can't pay. And I think what you're going to find over the next 12 to 18 months is that what I and many others have been saying over the last 10 years is going to prove to be correct and evidentially prove to have been correct, which is the majority of people left in mortgage arrears can't pay. And with our own Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, which is one of two debt charities in the state, every day we're dealing with people who simply can't pay. It's not about strategic defaulters the banks want to spin um, and non-engagers which the banks are trying to spin the public against mortgage holders and those people who are in debt. This is simply about people who can't pay and it's a major struggle for them day in and day out. And the whole row has changed from debt to housing. The whole challenge and the whole fear people have now has moved away from being in debt to where they're going to live because now there's a clear and present danger. And one of the examples I'll give, Ulster Bank sold 2,300 residential mortgages to a, a, a voter fund promontorio during the summer. They were actually quite honest in what they said, and what they said should have been alarming for everyone because of their honesty, which was, those 2,300 people, individual mortgage holders, that's 12,500 human beings and citizens, were restructured three times. Now, to engage with a bank, to provide your full financial information, to obtain a restructure, the average number of restructures that those 2,300 people had was three. They're all going to lose their home. And this is where the sad reality is now is that the housing crisis and homelessness crisis at the moment will, over the next 12 to 18 months, turn into a catastrophe because of the lack of planning by banks and a lack of planning by the Department of Housing. David Hall, CEO of Irish Mortgage Holders, we thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back with the news headlines after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. And you're very welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Carl Dervin. Joining me now in studio to discuss the issues of the day and your various texts to 086 1800 658 is Marie Cairns. Marie, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Carl, and good morning to all our listeners tuning in this morning. Lots of reaction coming in already, Cahill, to the various incidents that have occurred in Drogheda over the past couple of days in particular. Charlie from Navnan was listening in to the two councillors and Charlie was saying that people in Drogheda are very willing to cooperate with the Gardaí. He says everybody in the town knows who's involved in this crime activity. And he says that the Gardaí know exactly what is going on and is just wondering why there aren't any arrests, that the citizens of Drogheda are decent, good, honoured people and it's terrible to see what is going on. Uh, another listener, uh, it was actually Councillor P.O. Smith who was listening in and he says, just listening to the debate between Paul Bell and Kenneth Flood, just to just an additional comment to add, there needs to be legislation brought in to tackle organised crime, similar to what was enacted to combat the provisional IRA, i.e. 
the word of a Garda Chief Superintendent on the word of a Garda Chief Superintendent, an individual can be arrested and imprisoned for up to five years for being part of an illegal organisation. The Gardaí know who the people are who are running the two gangs. They just need the additional powers to put them out of business. What are our TDs doing in Leinster House about this? Councillor Smith wants to know. And people are clearly worried. Yes, Ian from Drada phoned in and says people in the town are terrified, particularly in Moneymore Estate, where a lot of this activity has been centred. People don't know what is going on at any given night. They're very afraid to when they're asleep in their beds because they don't know what's going on outside their front doors. And Ian worries that an innocent person could be seriously injured or killed. And again, the question being asked is, what are the Gardaí doing about this? Another listener, Catherine, rang in to say that she has definitely seen an increased guard presence mm. in the town over the past couple of weeks, that there are definitely more regular checkpoints. But she says that even makes her more worried because even while there's this extra guard presence on the streets, that you still have petrol bomb attacks on people's houses and cars being, explosives being put under cars. She says it's a very scary time and when you have children living in a house where this is going on, it's particularly traumatising for them. And she says that she has children went off to school this morning who weren't able to sleep last mm. night. We were saying that, weren't we, earlier on in the programme and of course both areas that were involved in those incidents yesterday are, are busy thoroughfares. Well that's right. Well, you I mean, know, the, the Dublin Road was around the Bull Rings, mm. the Mary's Church area and then we have Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. At this incident in Money More where people just weren't sure what was happening and there was all sorts of rumours flying around. Uh, another Tommy and Meath uh, contacted us to say, bring in the army to help. 
Uh, another listener says, what is the point of having a joint policing committee? If it is just a talking shop, Cahill, both your councillors have more or less said it's a talking shop. So why have it? Or should more pressure be placed on the powers that be to make sure that it's not just a talking shop? So that's a flavour of those that have come in so far on that particular topic. And I'm sure we will have many more throughout the course of the morning. Yes. What else are people engaging in today? We've lots coming in on Brexit as well um, and, and I can get to them if you want to in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Now we're joined in studio by Colm Corrigan from our sports department. Colm, good morning to you. This is a very sad weekend and a very sad day for Loud GA. Yes, uh, not not just for Loud GA, I suppose, uh, Carl, uh, the GA world in general, because uh, the over the weekend, as a lot of listeners would have heard already on uh, our bulletins and our programmes yesterday, the passing of uh, former Loud manager Paddy Clark. But uh, Loud manager, that was only one of his mm. very many many roles uh, club level. He managed in five different counties. He was involved with the international rules team back in the early noughties alongside Brian McIniff. And, uh, you know, his coaching, uh, so tactically astute, all the various jobs he had. And um, in terms of stats, um, I, there was nobody in Loud to match him in terms of going back way over so many, many years with Loud players and matches that they would have played over a long number of years. Paddy had every bit of information. That was his hobby. Mm. I suppose it was a labour of love for him in many respects. But uh, yeah, he, he passed away on Saturday night. Uh, he, he had been ill for the last uh, while, but uh, a great character, uh, Carl. And I don't think anybody uh, would have a bad word to say about Paddy. Even if you tried to fall out with him, uh, you'd still be friends with him, if, you, if, if I can put it like that. He was, he was, he was a unique kind of character and anybody I think that uh, has come into contact with Paddy over the years be it at club level management level or through the varying coaching capacity jobs that he had over the years uh, have bound to have been impressed by, by Paddy's enthusiasm and he was always a very welcome guest I mean I, I interviewed him a number of times he sat in the very seat that you're sitting in there today and, and he was such an affable character but he was a man who loved the GA the GA was the core of his life absolutely and and, and in saying that it was actually through soccer it was soccer coaching mm. actually that he started off with Drogheda United he won a couple of youth cups with Drogheda and then he entered um, GA management Matic Rangers would have been one of his first clubs in the 70s then he kind of progressed from there he was actually Mead minor manager for a while and then the next time I suppose he came to real prominence to Bannon when Stabannon won the Loud Championship in 1991 he was involved in that and I know they went on a trip abroad after that success and I know from talking to some of the Stabannon players and officials at the time Paddy's attention to detail I think he literally uh, organised that trip on his own he was really from the moment they left yeah, to the moment was, they got he, back you know, and, and that, that was something that he carried through probably from his work with Irish Cement and his various uh, coaching roles and management uh, roles that he had that he was able to organise everything mm. but you know then progressing from there he was involved with Kilmaine and Wood he was involved with St Bridget's Blanchardstown when they won a first Dublin title and a first Leinster in 03 before and that they, they paid tribute to him on, on absolutely yeah. and, and of course uh, his Loud job he wasn't long in the job in late 97 when uh, Loud won the all and b title um, so that was that was a feather in his cap very early on now championship results probably in the few years he was with, with Loud probably didn't turn out as he would have hoped for but they did win the Division 2 league title they beat Offaly in, in the year 2000 so he had a few uh, notable achievements as Loud manager and then Progressing beyond that, different different uh, club roles. He was in Dublin again. Nave Marnog took him on, and then in later years he was, was with Matoc again. And then his last job, actually the Dreadnoughts, he got them to a, a senior final in Louth in 2012. They were beaten on that occasion. But he's had he's had so many different roles, five different counties. Cavan and Monaghan, he's been inv- mm. he was he was um, involved in coaching in, in those two counties as well. So an array of jobs. And um, just speaking to someone from the Oliver Plunkett's club, uh, interestingly, he he actually wasn't affiliated to any 
club, which is a little bit unusual, I suppose, given the the, the length of time he's involved, been involved in coaching. Usually, you'd say, "Well, there's a you know a, a Joe's club yeah, man or right. a Plunkett's club man," but his uncle Phil actually was a founder member of the Plunkett's, but Paddy actually wasn't affiliated to any club. Lovely quote from from the Lowe, former Lowe goalkeeper Colin Nally, who said that he breathed life in, into even the most mundane of tasks. He was devoid of ego. Yes, I, Colm's interview yesterday I think mm. touched a lot of people on, on, on Sunday Sport. Um, he would have given Colm his debut as loud goalkeeper in the late 90s and then um, no doubt about it Paddy would have had a big impact on Colm going forward when Colm hung up his boots and entered coaching and Colm as we all know a, a very astute coach himself uh, and he's, his, his next job is, the, is, the, is, is with Andy McEntee in the mead job but he's had a lot of success already at club level and, and whatever else but yeah Colm yesterday paid a very touching tribute to him and the kind of influence that he had and bringing new ideas to the table all the time and you know he was a man that didn't stand still either you know he was mm. always willing to try new ideas and try to impress and um, upon his own ideas on whatever team he he managed, and I, you know, I think that rubbed off on on teams and players. So, uh, and you know, he he had a knack of getting the best out of players, as his list of achievements at different clubs would have would would would, would, would suggest. And Brian McIniff was, I know, was very impressed with him when they went to Australia and played against Australia in both two thousand and two thousand and one. Yeah, he, no, no, he was a key part of that. He was team. a key part of. I know he picked up a, a ban um, on one of those trips. <laughs> what did he do? Uh, but I think he he, he pushed an official. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, look, uh, no, that that was that was. I know talking to to Paddy in recent times, that was I think one of his career highlights was to mm. be involved in those and in those matches with with, the, with Ireland. I suppose that was the the icing in the cake, really. But after that, then he did come back to to, to club management again, as, as I say, with St. Bridget. So you know, all in all, uh, a, a massive loss. And I think when the news came through yesterday morning that Paddy Paddy had passed away, I think it was there was a, a, a deep sense of shock uh, and and a great deal of sadness. Um, and just looking at comments from all over the country because he would have been so well travelled and, and, and such a great character but uh, you know the stats that he was able to provide to, to the likes of myself and mm. some of the some of the workers uh, some of the journalists in the local newspapers it was absolutely second to none and Colin Nally actually uh, said in his interview yesterday about the fact that uh, you know he'd, he'd, off, he'd have players telephone numbers and he'd uh, text them on the morning of a match oh well Joe Soap this is your 100 appearance today the player wouldn't know this wouldn't even know themselves. and then all of a sudden he gets this and his phone best of luck today and so so there you are so, yeah. we can only offer our condolences to his family at this very difficult time for them but I know they will take great comfort in the tributes that have been paid to him no question and I'm sure that the funeral will be one of the biggest draw that I've has seen it's, mm. it takes place on Wednesday and I think they'll be coming from everywhere to, to pay tribute to a, to a great GA and a great sportsman our condolences as I say to the family of Paddy Clark former Loud manager and so many other things in the GA and indeed in soccer as you said and Colm thank you for coming in this morning to pay that very heartfelt tribute to Paddy Clark we will miss him as they say I know he was a guest here many times when I was in the studio and we thank him and his family and we wish them whatever condolences and whatever support we can over the coming days Michael Reed on LMFM Now we received a press statement over the weekend from Dundalk Chamber of Commerce regarding the organisation of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in town It's hard to believe we're just over Halloween, Christmas already starting to dominate in the shopping centres and the shopping malls across the country but already Dundalk Chamber of Commerce are having to look at the St. Patrick's Day Parade Joining me to discuss this is Paddy Malone, PRO of the Dundalk Chamber Good morning to you Paddy Good morning Carl this is not good news from the Chamber's point of view with regard to the St. Patrick's Day Parade, uh, Paddy. No, give us, it, an, give us an idea of what's in the press release. OK, well, it's been a, an issue that's been slowly burning for the last while, is the best way to put it. Even before last year's parade, we had a problem with getting people uh, to volunteer to help us. Now, um, 
there were three people, and I'll signal out one, Elaine Kyo, who was in the Long Walk shopping centre. Um, she took a very active role in the whole situation, and then there were two within the chamber organisation itself, um, who masterminded and ran the whole thing for the last number of years. And we in, they indicated um, one of them was taking uh, a sabbatical from the, from, uh, the chamber because uh, they were looking after a sick relative. Um, and the other had been trans- was going to be transferred to a new business, or a, new, a new section, and just simply wasn't going to be in the country as much as he had been. So we knew that even before last year's parade, we were going to have a problem with the 2019 parade. And what really helped us in the 2018 parade was the tremendous support that the Dark Credit Union gave us, uh, came on board with a fair amount of money and a fair amount of resources. And... Unfortunately, the weather, the Grand Slam and everything else beat us, but it, it would have been a good one if it, if, it, if it had run right. The problem we had then was that we put the council on notice that because of a lack of personnel um, that we had, uh, we just were not physically able to organise it again next year, that we would help in any way we could, that the people who had put in tremendous work over the last 10 years would make themselves available. We had a dossier created of what you do and what you don't do and why you don't do these things and why you do the th- those things. So we, we said to the council, look, and that was last April. Uh, myself and David Minto met the council last April and we said to them, we can't do it next year and we need to start planning for this now. Um, and we've raised this through email and personal contacts and other things with the council officials over the last while. And um, I, I then raised it with Conor Keelan, and as did Pat McCormick, our president. And Conor, to be fair to him, um, realised the seriousness of the whole situation and has been trying to get a meeting scheduled. But unfortunately, nothing's happened. And we're beginning to worry then that stories are starting to leak and all the rest of it. And we just wanted to make the position clear. We will help in any way we can but we can't lead, not this year. This, is this the town council in Dundalk? Yeah. Paddy, well, yeah, the, yeah. the municipal district municipal council district to give it its grandiose yes, name. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, so you've had no response from them? No. Which is disappointing. Yes. Uh, look, the problem that the council have, and I can understand it from their point of view, it's not their job either as such. And there, there's been a huge reorganisation within the council and in structural terms in that the old council... Uh, was was Dundalk Town Council ran Dundalk full stop and it ran everything in Dundalk whereas the new Municipal District Council uh, is part of Louth County Council so there's a change in the administration and who does what but we've that's why we raised the issue as within two weeks within a month of the St Patrick's Day Parade we raised the issue so that whoever was going to catch that ball in the County Council would have fair notice and unfortunately there's been no response. So you've been left with no choice but to issue this statement. Yeah, and we want to make it clear, we will help in any shape or form within our capacity, you know, and, and it's just that, you know, somebody, we, we actually debated calling a public meeting and we, we were afraid that if we called a public meeting, guess who'd end up carrying the baby when, we, when the meeting was over, mm. which is what we wanted to avoid. So therefore, we felt we had no option but to go to the council, tell them last April, look, lads, we just aren't physically able to do it. Will you please help us? The parade had died away, Paddy, hadn't it? <coughs> Absolutely not. No, years ago. I mean, years ago. The, well, the parade had died yes, yeah, 15 yeah. years ago. And yeah. the counts, what actually happened then was there was a number of various organisations came to the chamber 
the Tidy Towns was one, and there were several other organisations. And they came to the chamber and said, would you do it again? Would you, would you, would you look at revamping it? And, and, and it was meant to be a collaborative approach. In fact, it ended up that we carried it. Now, we didn't mind that when we had the resources to do it. And with the exception of last year, and last year, you know, how anybody was able to even go out for half an hour was a miracle. We were normally getting between fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people in the town for that. And there was a knock-on effect because people that we were, and this is the point that is very often missed, we have to pay the floats, we have to pay the bands to be there. And then when they were out anyway, other parades like Black Rock and RD were able to piggyback on the work that we had done by inviting those vans to go out and do a second run. Mm. Now, I'm not too sure whether those are going to be able to get them at a full cost because obviously we were meeting the main cost by paying for the bands in the first place. Um, I'm not too sure how that's going to work. And that's another knock-on effect that we're worried about. But you see, the problem we have is that 15 years ago when we started to do it again, you didn't have health and safety. You didn't have all the problems that come with that and with regulations. Like, for example, everyone wearing a yellow vest on the St. Patrick's Day Parade has to be vetted. Now, we get around that problem. Well, we don't get around that problem. That problem is resolved by using Dundalk Football Club and fair play to them and others. Some of the, some of the, some of the GA clubs come on board as well. And that's how we get around that problem. We have to sweep up at the end of the night. Now, we do that. And it all, it all costs money. And it I, all co- I mean, and it's volunteers that, you know, everyone else has gone home, everyone else has gone to the pub, and there's a handful of people, David Minter would be the main one, out on six o'clock sweeping up cigarette butts from the square. Can I ask you finally, Paddy, if people would like to get involved in this debate, if they would like to make contact with you to try and save the parade? Absolutely. And how how be, can they do that? If they contact the Chamber, so info at chamber, at info at dundalk.ie, or Brenda at Dundalk.ie. She'll hang me for that one, but that's, that's the easiest way to contact us. Or lift the phone and ring the chamber, uh, 9336343. We would be delighted, only delighted, if somebody else came along and said, we'll work with you and we'll get the thing done. It's just that we physically... And one of the things that we did was, and we want to make thanks to it, the DKIT always lent us, if, if that's the right word, but the DKIT always had two or three people involved in it who were doing an event management course. And this was part of their well, training and part of their course. Paddy, so that's another loss to us, you know. Paddy, we thank you for that and we would ask people if they would like to get involved to make contact with your good selves in the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. That's Paddy Malone there, PRO of Dundalk Chamber, regarding the St. Patrick's Day Parade and their problems in terms of organising the 2019 parade in the town. Now, as you'll have seen on the television last night, the presidential inauguration at Dublin Castle and a very uh, emotional and at times very emphatic Michael D. Higgins making his presidential speech. Before we came on air, I spoke to our political correspondent on the Sean Defoe about the event and I asked him first of all if this was very much a pomp and political glitterati event which was of course also featured many of the artistic elements which the President has brought to the office. Absolutely yeah with people from all walks of life uh, and all walks of political life as well I suppose in St. Patrick's Hall in Dublin Castle last night you had a good chunk of the Oireachtas of TDs and Senators from across most of the political parties. You had long-time supporters of Mr Higgins and Sabina Higgins. Some of his family as well were there to see him become president for a second time. Some of the Labour people who campaigned for him down throughout the years, as well as most of the judiciary. I think all of the Supreme Court justices were there last night. And different other people from around uh, walks of life. I mean, Joanne O'Carroll, the campaigner, Sinead Burke, the, the fashionista and artist was there as well. And all of the 
people who were defeated in the presidential election, all the other runners and riders, were there with their partners to watch Michael D. Higgins being sworn in for a second time. Quite a lot of music involved, quite a lot of artistry, as you'd expect, I suppose, from Michael D. Higgins with his involvement with arts down throughout the years. The music to the ceremony was truly lovely, I have to say, and there were different poems read in English and Irish. And interestingly as well, there was kind of a multi-religious aspect to the ceremony as well. A lot of it was kind of prayers and readings at the start, but they were said from people from the, the Catholic Church, the Church of Ireland, there was a Jewish rabbi, there was someone from the Muslim community, and indeed a leader of the Humanist Church as well there, to give their, I suppose, best wishes to Michael D. Higgins as he went on. So it was interesting to see that multi-religious aspect to it. So it's very much his, his intention, as he stated throughout his campaign, is to reflect the modern Ireland. Yeah, he was talking, what he talked through the campaign and again last night in his speech was about creating a real republic and it's hard to define what that is because in the speech he touched on many things and he did say it was kind of a broad house, a broad brush approach to Ireland of inclusion rather than leaving people out. You did see that in the ceremony with the different religious people there, as I mentioned, and the different members of society that were invited, all the diplomats from various countries as well. So he did talk in very, very broad terms, talked talk, touched on a huge amount of topics throughout his speech in this idea of the the real republic and who is involved and who's part of it and who must be looked after going forward. I think probably his most powerful interventions were on the topics of climate change, but also domestic uh, domestic violence. He said it was a scourge on women in this country, uh, given especially that they make up more than half the population. They are in the majority. And that that is something that needs to be dealt with and did have a little bit of a go as well as, uh, at the government and at various governments for valuing short-term thinking and short-term results, publicity, etc., in favour of long-term thinking, which could actually help Ireland. So it was quite a lofty speech that he gave, quite an aspirational and an academic one, but did touch on a lot of important issues. One of the things that comes across in the papers this morning that is that he very much feels he's been given a mandate now by his victory for the vision of his Ireland. Yeah, even in some of the literature he was sending out to his supporters during the week, he was saying that this is the greatest mandate that any president has been given, which is true in terms of the volume of votes that he got. He increased the amount of votes he got in 2011, more than 800,000 people voting for him. And while on percentage share, it's not the, the record that's held by Eamon de Valera. Still, he came very, very close to beating that in terms of the number of overall votes. It is the greatest mandate that has been given to a president and a ringing endorsement, you'd have to say, on his first seven years in office. So now he has that backing and very much, very clearly, the backing of the majority of the people to go on for another seven years. And of course, we can get into a debate on how much the president can actually do, the limits of the role, etc. But he has outlined what he thinks his vision of it is and, and the difference that he can make from the Oris. What do you think, Sean, might be different this time around? I think he did speak during the campaign about taking a while to get settled into the role. And it's interesting, I mean, usually when these ceremonies are held, yesterday was different for quite a lot of reasons, as was notably. It was the first one to be held in the evening because of the armistice celebrations in the morning. And President Higgins requested that himself, that it would be pushed back by six and, hours. And, and he, was quite fo- he was quite vocal at that as well, wasn't he, about how we, he, we had almost ignored the, the, those who had fought in the First World War and died. Absolutely, he was very very vocal on that, which is particularly interesting given how divisive it, it still can be when you see the arguments over the wearing of the poppy, when you see other arguments. And I think it's interesting how that narrative is changing and how he's leading the way in terms of that and to how we view the Irish people who fought for the British Army during the World War. But, you know, he did really talk about, to get back to what he might do differently, that's something that he was raising, there are different issues. I think he might be a little bit more vocal. I think certainly... 
the Michael D. Higgins we saw yesterday, that we saw in some parts of the debate and in his final speech when he accepted it on the day that he was elected. It was a lot more energised than he was at the start of the campaign. Sometimes a campaign like that can do that, can just light a fire under him again to go on. And he did refer to when he settled into the office the first time in 2011. It took him 18 months or two years to really get the hang of the role. You hear that from a lot of presidents. But, you know, even typically when they would have that ceremony last night, they go to the Oris to meet the Secretary General there and meet their staff. He's already done that. He knows the staff, he knows the workings, he knows how it's done. So you would think he'd be able to land back into it straight away and perhaps pursue some of the things that he had been looking at before and some of this new agenda, this real republic that he keeps on talking about with a bit more ease because all the process to him and the limits of the Constitution are well known at this stage. It's like starting any new job. After you're betting in for a while, you're a bit better at it in theory. So uh, that might be what different. And, and you would like to see a bit more vocal because he is a man who has a lot of thoughts. He's incredibly intelligent and he talked about that last night. He talked about anti-intelligentism around the world and how the likes of Donald Trump, without mentioning him specifically, are using it and how it can be a tool of tyranny is the way that he referred to it. So those kind of views are very interesting, very nuanced, and you'd like to see him share them a bit more. It also appears from the reports in the papers this morning of his speech that he was quite energised almost by the Peter Casey comments regarding the travelling community. Yeah, without referencing them specifically in his speech, he did you know, a lot of it focused on inclusion, a lot of it focused on keeping people together. And I thought there was a particularly interesting line um, that he spoke about when he was he was talking, he was actually talking about the centenaries and the different centenaries that we're going to have to face off. But it's interesting to, to get an insight into the way that he thinks about dealing with, with difficult topics. And he said, above all, we must not reopen wounds, talking about the centenary, the civil war, etc., that we're going to have to deal with in the next coming years. But we must get sufficiently close to acknowledge those scars that tell us the depth of hurt experience. So I thought that was a particularly interesting line in the speech, because you can apply it to all different walks of life where we're having difficult conversation, that you can do it without dividing people and reopening old hurts, but still getting to the heart of the subject and getting to what affects people. So without implicitly saying, you know, I think the comments with travellers and whatever else are are wrong, he did hint at it strongly and inclusion was a big theme of the speech. He also once again um, made a very strong message to the young people of Ireland. That was an interesting part of his speech, I thought. He, He spent a good while talking about the young people of Ireland and what the young people of Ireland want. And for some, it might actually jar. As a, as a relatively young person myself, I can say some of it did jar to me because he talked in quite lofty and aspirational terms about, you know, young people don't want to return to violence and don't want proliferation of, of arms around the world and nuclearization and all of that. And that, that's true. I mean, you know, certainly a lot of people would be against war in general, but it just seems to strike an odd I suppose, note when the majority of young people, certainly that I know, the priority isn't that. That isn't where their mind is. The priority is, well, how am I going to get a house? How am I going to get paid here? How am I going to get looked after? They're different, more practical issues. So I thought that was an interesting one, taking the the bigger aspirational picture that maybe it is talked about, but I certainly haven't heard heard it talked about a huge amount. But that did feature heavily in his speech. And finally, Sean, just to add a lighter note to the the end of our conversation this morning, but the two dogs got a mention from the Taoiseach. Yes, yeah, that was probably one of the few moments of levity throughout the entire uh, the entire speeches. The Taoiseach was congratulating everyone who was here and said, and, and 
particularly, you know, stuck a pointed note at the start by saying, and of course we remember those who aren't here as we mark Armistice Day, and he says, namely Brode and Sheena, uh, Sheena, the two dogs of Michael D. Higgins, who drew so much love throughout the campaign. Uh, I'm sure they got the special dog food or something yesterday to celebrate and maybe another grooming session or something. But uh, yeah, they weren't there in Dublin Castle anyway. And that was Sean Defoe, our political correspondent, uh, reporting on last night's events as Michael D. Higgins was inaugurated for a second term as president at Dublin Castle. And uh, as you heard us end there with the story of the two dogs, and I'm actually reliably informed that there are three dogs that the president also has a Labrador who tends to get forgotten on such occasions. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And you are indeed welcome back to the Michael Reed show. Now Ireland recent statistics show our only we are only investing a quarter of the EU average when it comes to childcare and the trade union SIP2 has called on the government for a major increase in spending which currently lies at just 0.2% of GDP. The union says that women are being forced into low paid jobs and precarious contracts because they cannot get affordable childcare. Join us to discuss this now is Dara O'Connor who is the national coordinator for SIP2's Big Start campaign. Dara, good morning to you. Morning, Carl. Give us an idea, first of all, Dara, please, about Big Start and what it entails. So, uh, for, for a long time, the, the trade union movement has been talking about childcare or the, the early year sector uh, for, for two big reasons. One is that we have lots of workers who are uh, qualified and are paid really low wages. And, and then we have lots of parents, uh, and a lot of them who are members of ours, uh, who are who are paying really, really high fees uh, to put their kids into uh, preschool and to, and to crash. And so we've taken a really big decision to start a nationwide campaign to try and transform the sector uh, and to try and fix those two big problems that we have at the moment, the affordability issue as well as the, the low pay issue. And this is something which which will affect the parents who are looking to put their children into childcare, but will also benefit those who are working in childcare because it's it's not a very well paid profession, is it? No, it's 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 pretty low. Um, we have everyone everyone working in the sector is qualified, and there is a big push to get more and more graduates in there. Um, but we have members; they've done their they've done their degrees, they've done their three four years, and they could be earning a tenner an hour, maybe eleven euros an hour. So they don't see much of a future for themselves. Uh, and they look down the road to the Little and the Aldi and they think, well, I can get more money working there with less responsibility. And understandably, it's, leaving, it's, it's led to a staffing crisis where about uh, almost 30% of people are leaving their jobs every year in the sector. Uh, and that has, obviously, when you think about it, then that's going to have an impact on quality as well when so much of the work is about relationships and that bond between the educators and the children and people just who can't afford to stay in the job that they love. Of course, the catch-22 here for parents is that, as we've seen today, reports that rents are now 30% higher than they were during the Celtic Tiger boom years. The house of prices has gone up. More and more uh, families are being forced to be have both parents out working, which leads to an increase in the demand for childcare. Yeah, and, and I, I think a lot of it, like anecdotally in conversations, you, you, I'm sure you, your, your listeners would have with people as well, is, you, you know, you have another kid comes along and it's great and it's a joyous time, but parents are faced with some really tough choices. Um, you, you know, do do we send a kid into creche and why we have to spend an extra thousand euros a month or does someone have to give up work? And a lot of people are in that position where, 
mum or dad have to have to stay at home to look after the kid and generally it's mum who takes up that role as well um, because working just doesn't pay um, where you know where people might earn maybe just 20 euros a week um, or even less uh, when they take the, when they strip out the childcare costs of how much it costs for them actually to go to work. We are expensive for childcare. I'm just looking at the figures here in front of me. The average outside of Dublin is €697 Euros per month per child, but this rises to over €1,000 per month in Dublin. We have the second most expensive childcare of all the OECD countries for couples and the highest for single parents. Yeah, I'd say once Brexit happens, we'll be the most expensive for couples as well. Um, and, and so there's, there's a couple of really kind of big problems with, with having such high costs of childcare. So one is just for people themselves are not able to make those choices if they want to go to work, right? That, that, it's a really hard choice to make for a lot of people, particularly if you're low paid. Um, but also for, for the economy, right? So we have the government saying we're almost at full employment. We need to encourage people back to work. Well, that's almost impossible for parents with young children who have to send their kids to crash. Um, there's no kind of economic advantage, right? They, they just really, really kind of struggle with it. So really we need the government to do what every other government in Europe does, and that's make a proper investment into childcare, into early years, so that it's affordable for parents, but also that we get decent quality for the children while they're there. And, and, and that means decent wages for the people who are delivering it. I'm looking at a quote here uh, from an article you wrote yourself, I think it was the RT website, but it says that the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs, Catherine Zappone, has recognised the contradiction in the fact that we don't spend enough on childcare. And she said that she will radically reform the funding model for early childhood care and education. Has she? The, the So, I, I, I suppose, I, I live in hope, but I work to make sure that it actually happens. Um, th- this... There, there is an earlier strategy which is due to be released next Monday. Uh, the minister has been talking that, there's, that they are going to work towards a, a radical new funding model. This is really welcome. This is something that the, 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 uh, our union and our members are advocating for. Um, but we, it has to be a model that works. It has to be a model that delivers for parents, that makes it affordable. It has to deliver for the, for the, for the children, that it's high quality. Um, it has to deliver for the workers... And, and the providers as well. Um, so, I mean, that does, it, it's about getting enough money to put into the sector to, to sort out the problem and then making sure that that money is effectively spent. What can you do next? Um, well, we're doing, we, we, we're, we're on our mission and we're, we're organising workers all over the country and thousands are joining the union. Um, but signing a form does not a campaign make. So that's why we're 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 out and we're advocating, we're talking to parents, we're talking to politicians, and we're making this into a, a big issue that, that can't be ignored. And I think next year is going to be a really big year for the campaign, for the sector. Uh, more than likely, we're going to be heading into an election, and we have to make sure that um, when politicians are knocking on the door, that they know that uh, childcare is a big issue for a lot of people, that uh, it, the, 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 the stick and plaster solutions just aren't good enough anymore. And finally, Dara, if people would like more information on the Big Start campaign, is there a website they can go to? Yeah, and they can go to bigstart.ie and uh, it's on Facebook and Twitter as well. If you just start search for Big Start Ireland, um, you'll see it all there. 
That's Dara O'Connor, National Coordinator for SIP2's Big Start campaign. We thank Dara for his involvement in the programme this morning. We're going to be talking rents after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. This is the Michael Reed Show on Monday the 12th of November and you're welcome back. We're going to discuss now the rising costs of rents. Before the break, you'll have heard us talking to Dara O'Connor from SIP2 about their Big Start campaign and the quest for affordable childcare. But reports in this morning's papers will give you more bad news because Tiger rents are back 30% higher than the average in 2008. In Dublin alone, rents are now averaging €2,000 a month and the national average is €1,334 per month to rent an apartment or a house. Joining us to discuss this is Ronan Lyons, Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College in Dublin and author of this report for daft.ie, the property website. Good morning to you, Ronan. Good morning, Carl. Thanks for having me on. This is not good news. No, I mean, while some landlords may welcome it, obviously uh, tenants won't. And from a, a country's point of view, accommodation is it's a cost um, and it affects how people, it, both from a, a competitiveness point of view, trying to attract jobs in, but even from a social justice point of view, everyone being able to afford somewhere to live and to have some choice in that. Um, high rents are, are a bad thing. Uh, and uh, as, as you mentioned, rents are uh, roughly 30% on average higher than they were a decade ago, or a little over a decade ago now, um, at the, the height of the Celtic Tiger. Um, and indeed, in, in Meath and Loud, it's 35% higher in Louth and nearly 40% higher in Mead um, than the previous peak. Um, going, and back to to two, going back to 2008. That's right. That's, uh, it goes to show that there's lots of demand out there, but uh, as we can see from the figures, very weak supply. Um, almost no availability on the market at the moment, and that's what's, what's pushing rents up. It's a long time since I studied economics at St. Patrick's School in Navan, uh, Ronan, but supply and demand is, is, is the oldest rule in the book, isn't it? That's right, and... Uh, there's, there's, there's many other elements to the housing market, but the most important one is the, that relationship between supply and demand. And you know, some people don't like those words. You can think about it as need and availability, but ultimately it comes down to the same thing. How many homes are there out there and how many, how many households need those homes? And if you look at the, the commuter counties as a whole, um, two years ago there were 450 home, rental homes on the market in November. Now there's fewer than 350 and in fact, both of those numbers are, are well below numbers that you would have seen, uh, say, in 2012 or 2011. There were over 2,000 homes available in the commuter counties to rent at any particular point in time. We're now talking about perhaps only 15 or 20 percent of that number. So in terms of Louth and Mead, what are the average rents at this moment in time? The average rent in Louth is just under €1,200 Euro a month. That's up 12% in the year and up 96% uh, from its lowest point uh, in 2012. In Mead, the 96%? Is, that's right, yeah. Um, the, in Mead, the average rent is just under €1,300 Euro a month, and that's up also 12% in the year. And the increase there is just under 100%. Uh, from its lowest point, 99.4% increase um, from its lowest point. So basically, rents have doubled in Louth and Mead over the last six years as there's been lots of demand but no new supply added. What's the solution to all of this? The solution, in one in one way, it, it, it's quite easy. The solution is more supply. We need to build more homes, especially rental homes, and especially rental homes in and close to the cities for one- and two-person households. So we're talking about building apartments for rent. Um, unfortunately, 
that's easy to say, less easy to do. We have a construction sector that hasn't proven itself in the past to be able to do that. Um, Our construction sector, when it has succeeded, typically has succeeded in estate housing, not in uh, urban apartments. Um, Also, we have a policy system that doesn't fully recognise that gap yet. The policy system is still based around building homes for first-time buyers. As it happens, we have enough family homes, we just don't have families living in them. Um, We've got uh, groups of young professionals or groups of students or indeed empty nesters um, who might want to downsize we have all of those living in three and four and five bed family homes and that means it looks like we need to build more family homes but in fact we don't when you look at the housing stock so there's, there's a number of different elements that we need to adjust in particular the cost of construction viability um, but the simple answer the one sentence answer is um, however it happens we need more supply as a nation we don't like apartments do we we don't like apartment living I would call it a misconception. Um, I think we're not good at building them, but when they're built, we do live in them. And and what I would look to is the apartment blocks that have been built, the small number of apartment blocks that have been built in Dublin over the last 10 years. They're disproportionately lived in by over 55s. So it's, it's not even the case that younger people might live in them, but older people won't. It's that when good quality apartments are built in the locations where people want to live, nobody has a problem living in them. It's just that we've never had those apartments at scale. So we've never been able to, um, to, to test. It's certainly more than 10 or 15% of the population will be happy to live in apartments. Is it 60 or 70%? Probably not. But let's get it up to 20 or 30% and see if there's demand for all those extra apartments. I'd be pretty confident there is based on the small number that have been built and who lives in those. So if we build them, they will come? <laughs> at, at, at the risk of using that cliche, I, I think <laughs> the, the, the demand is there. So I, I certainly think that's the case for Ireland at the moment. Where are landlords in all of this? I think the, the, the smaller scale landlords, um, what we've found is that they typically pass on about half of the increase to sitting tenants. So the, what we're measuring in the draft board is, is market rents. If you go on the market right now, what do you pay? Um, the, some, the, someone who has stayed in their accommodation, um, they'll typically have only paid half of that increase. So of the 100% that rents have gone up in Mead, um, a, a typical tenant may have only paid 50% if they stayed in their accommodation all that while. Um, the quid pro quo is that the landlord expects to be able to go up to the market once that tenant eventually does move on. Rent pressure zones mess that up a little bit. Um, but the other story about landlords is that we're moving away from um, a reliance solely on landlords with one or two or three homes towards a, a more professional, and I use that term objectively, um, not as a sort of a value judgment, um, a more professional institutional landlord base where you've got companies that um, make a living out of managing apartment blocks with hundreds of people living in we, them. We've seen whole apartment blocks sold to companies, haven't we? That's right, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, they they, they, they t- tend to be good tenant managers, um, but they are, are, of course, going to be relatively clinical about how they do it as well. So they probably are going to increase the rent by 3 or 4% every year in line with the rent pressure zone legislation. Um, but in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with an institutional landlord base. Um, I think we're probably going to see more movement in that direction over the coming years. What would you like the government to do? I think the, the three steps, the three areas the government needs to look at. The first is around viability. The cost of building relative to our incomes is out of line and we need to adjust that. And that's true for profit housing and for non-profit housing as well. 
uh, and the non-profit housing, we need to reform how we do that. Currently, systems like HAP are all based around market rents, but the market is never going to provide social housing. Um, social housing should be based around cost rents. How much does it cost to provide new housing and how much help does someone need relative to that? So the first area is construction costs. The second area is social housing reform. And the third area is land use. If we have outdated use of land all around our major cities and towns. Uh, and if you, if you let that go on, we're just going to see more sprawl. We need to redensify um, to, to build in in, uh, in cities and towns, and that will help alleviate the problem. Ronan Lyons, Assistant Professor of Economics with Trinity College in Dublin and author of the Daft.ie Rental Report, which is available in all the newspapers this morning. We thank you for your time. My thanks, as always, to Marie, to Maggie, to Chris and to Shauna. We're going to be back tomorrow with Michael back in the seat. News is next at 11. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.